If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you, by the way, go ahead and open up to John chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the back of the pew there. It's the black book there. Uh, it should be probably around page like 950 or so. I didn't look it up this week, uh, but it should be somewhere in that region. If you need help, there's a table of contents in the front of your Bible, uh, or you help, may have a neighbor nearby who can point you that direction, Okay. Now, as you're doing that and you're turning over there, we do talk about love around here a whole lot. We say around here that our goal is love based off of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. We talked last week about the idea that love looks more like find on dirty jobs than what you find in the Hallmark aisle on Valentine's Day, which, guys, I, I tried to warn you. I hope you didn't drop the ball. I hope you were able to do something for Valentine's Day and celebrate your significant other and your bride or your girlfriend, whatever the case may be. Uh, but this morning, we're going to look at love from a different angle than the way that we typically think of love. Most of the time when we talk about love in our society, we have the idea that we have to love someone, and for us to truly love them, that we have to be equal with them. Now, we believe that every human being is created in the image of God and has equal worth, value, and dignity, no matter their race, no matter their stage of development, no matter what their abilities are, no matter where they come from or what their background is, every human being is created in the image of God with unique and value. However, just because of that doesn't mean that every relationship we have always means that we come to it together as equals. For instance, think about the way that you loved your mom and dad when you were growing up. If you had a good mom and dad, which I hope you did, that you know that they would tell you times that there were things you were supposed to do right? There were things that you were not supposed to do. There were things that you were supposed to do. And if you had a good mom and dad, they told you those things because they loved you. They wanted what was best for you. They wanted you to be able to flourish. They wanted you to be able to grow up and be a responsible human being who doesn't do things like play with copperheads in the front yard. You know, they would tell you these things because they loved you. So out of your response then, because they were your mom and dad, your job as their child was to respond by loving them through doing what they said, right? That was part of the way that you loved your mom and dad was that you responded to them and you obeyed what they asked you to do. Now, again, if you had a, a difficult home life, I apologize for pulling that back up. But, but the reality is in a loving family, the goal is that me as a dad would help my kids to be able to do the right thing that's going to be for their flourishing. And they show their love to me in one way by doing what I ask them to do because I tell them that out of love, okay? Are we clear that that's a valid form of love? Because, see, there are some folks, like I said, who say, well, that can't be love because there's a power differential. You can't really love somebody in that kind of situation. But what we have to understand is, as we look at the love that we share with Jesus, if we can recognize that in a father-son or a mom and a child kind of relationship, in those kind of relationships, if there's a, a little bit of a power differential, but there's still love, we got to understand that, that our love relationship with Jesus is not a love between two equals, Right? The love that we share with Jesus, Jesus is the creator God of the universe. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the one who can speak and cause the storm to be stilled. And so he's not on the same field we're on, right? We're playing a different game in a lot of ways. Yet he loves us incredibly richly and deeply, and he calls us to do the same. As we go through John chapter 14, what we're going to be seeing is Jesus making a very clear statement at least three different times and implying it a few other places that if we really love Jesus, we're going to do what he says. 
Now, remember, as we go back to everything that we teach as a church, we know that we are not saved or or we don't come into a relationship with Jesus by doing good things. It's not a matter of me doing enough good stuff to please God. I can't do that because the Bible says that I'm sinful in who I am. In fact, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, it says in Ephesians chapter 2. So the only way for me to come into a relationship with God is for God to love me first and draw me to himself. And then when I respond and he makes me alive and I come into that relationship with him, then now my response out of love to him is to do what he tells me to do, to live the way that he calls me to live. If I would expect that with my parents, then wouldn't I even more do that for my Savior, for my God, okay? So are we clear that that's kind of what we're going to be talking about this morning? We on the same page on that? Everybody good with this? All right, now, just in case you're wondering, just so you know, I'm not just, you know, kind of making this up, look at verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Then jump down to verse 21. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Okay? So at least three different times, Jesus explicitly says, if we love him, then we're going to do what he says. Now, by the way, we could make a whole message just out of that point. Because the reality is, if you've grown up here in the South, everybody's a Christian, right? I mean, I'm Christiansburg born and raised. It's in, it's in the name of our town for crying out loud, right? Everybody's a Christian. Uh, I remember just getting frustrated when we moved into the deep south. I lived in Arkansas for about 13 months. And man, you think it's bad here. Everybody in Arkansas saved. It, like, it doesn't matter what. You, they all think that they know Jesus because their grandma prayed for them and took them to church. And hey, listen, if you had a grandmother who loved the Lord and took you to church, that's a wonderful thing. There are going to be untold number of people who are in heaven because their grandma prayed for them, all right? It's just an amazing thing. But just because you grew up in the South, just because you grew up going to church, just because you grew up with a praying grandma, doesn't mean that you're right with God. In fact, if, if you look at your life and what you're seeing doesn't really line up with how Jesus tells us to behave, can you really say that you love him if you're not doing what he says? Now, like I said, we could spend the whole day just kind of driving into that, that part of it, but I, I wanted to look at it from a slightly different perspective because as we go through this, we're going to see some really beautiful things. That's kind of the harsh truth of it. We need to make sure our life reflects that we love Jesus and we do what he says. But here's what's so beautiful. In the middle of this passage, what we're going to find as we go through is Jesus is going to give us at least five benefits that you and I enjoy because we're living like he's called us to live, because we're doing what he's called us to do. We have at least five benefits we can draw from this passage where, that even encourages all the more to love Jesus and do what he says and to grow in our walk with him. So if you're struggling today with why should I follow Jesus, is it worth it, does it matter, then my challenge to you is look at these five benefits that he offers those who do what he says out of a heart that loves him. And see if that doesn't take place. Now, the other thing for us as Christians is, as you're watching this, as you're going through this, as you're listening to these verses, I want to challenge you. Are these five things present and active in your life, or are there areas where you're not walking in obedience and so you're not seeing these things take place? Now, listen, when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I command, he's not saying that you're going to be perfect and that you're never going to sin and you're always going to do the right thing and you're never going to do the wrong thing. That's not what Jesus is saying. However, as you look at the general course of your life, but compare it to five years ago, if, if I look at my life five years ago, there ought to be a marked difference in the way that I'm living. It should look more like Jesus in some areas than it did five years ago. Does that make sense? 
okay? We clear? All right, so let's dive in. Now, as we're doing this, remember, a few weeks ago, we jumped into John 14 when we jumped back into our study of John. We just hit those first six or seven verses last time, so we're actually gonna be picking up in verse eight. But to give you some context, to remind you what's going on, remember, this is the night before Jesus is going to head to the cross. He's sitting down with his disciples for one last meal, teaching them the last time before he's getting ready to go to the cross and die for their sins. In chapter 13, like we saw last week, he washed their feet giving them the example of the fact that if we genuinely love Jesus, service is gonna be a key part of our identity. There's nobody who's beneath us. There's no act that we could ever do that's beneath us, but serving people is what God has called us to do, okay? So then after that, by the way, we didn't catch a lot of the things that are going on. In the course of that discussion in chapter 13, Jesus tells them, number one, he's about to die. He tells them he's about to go away, He tells them that all of the disciples are going to fall away. One of them is going to be the one who betrays them, and that Peter, who's kind of the leader of the whole group, is actually going to deny that he even knows Jesus three times before dawn the next morning. That's a big deal. Can you imagine? You're you're going into the Passover meal. All of this hype has been building around Jesus. It looks like there's about to be something significant happening. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is washing your feet. He's telling you all of these things. Your brain would just be spinning at this point with all that he said in the last little bit. Now, keep in mind what Jesus is about to do. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be beaten. He's about to be hung on a cross by the way, keep in mind in those days, you know, on the pictures that we see of Jesus on the cross, they always put some kind of loincloth on him. That's not how you were crucified. You were naked and exposed for all the world to see you and humiliate you. God in the flesh was getting ready to go through all of that, not to mention the fact that he was taking the wrath of God for all of our sins while he was on the cross. He was paying for all of that and was about to die in a physically excruciating and spiritually unimaginable way. And yet, what does he do the night before? He spends time comforting his disciples. If there was ever a time when Jesus should have sat back and said, guys, I I need y'all's help. I need you to just be with me for a minute. In fact, he does that in the garden, doesn't he? He says, guys, stay awake and pray with me. But in this moment, He's trying to give them peace, trying to give them comfort and caring for them on this last night. So as we see this this morning, I want you to go through. We're going to read through a whole lot of Scripture. We're going to cover a lot of ground here. We're not going to get as deep into stuff as I would like to on some of these areas. But I want you to see these five benefits that are ours for those of us who walk in obedience with Jesus out of a heart that loves him. Okay? The first thing that happens as we do what he says is we come to a greater knowledge of God. See, we get a greater knowledge of God. Look with me in verse 8. Actually, back up to verse 7. Jesus said, if you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse 8, Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you don't know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I don't speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Now, there's a lot in this passage. As Jesus is going through, one of the key truths that John has been highlighting throughout the book is the unity that exists between Jesus as God the Son 
and God the Father. He's over and over again highlighted the fact that Jesus and the Father are one. It started the very first verse of the book. Now, this is getting into a, a really tricky concept that we call the Trinity, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But see, Philip and the disciples had seen Jesus do great things. They'd seen him calm storms. They'd seen him heal people. They'd even seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. And in the middle of all this, they still didn't quite understand what they were seeing. They wanted to see the Father. They wanted to see God in some kind of theophany. They wanted him to show up in some kind of way, let us go out of town, and and let's see God appear in some kind of way. And what Jesus responds with is, if you've seen me, you've seen God. You've actually watched the Father work as you've seen me. Jesus' answer here would have been absolutely shocking. There's nothing in the Old Testament that would have prepared them for this. Now, we look back at the Old Testament, and we see how God was working in the Old Testament in these ways, but as they're sitting there that night, they had almost no framework to understand that Jesus is equal with God the Father. He'd said it over and over again, but finally he's starting to really drill it in here and say, listen, I and the Father are one. Now, because these disciples had been walking with Jesus for all these years, about three years it looks like up at this point, they had gotten to learn truths about God that nobody in history had yet understood. Isn't that incredible? Now, am I saying that if you follow Jesus and and you honor and obey him, that God's going to give you some kind of mysterious knowledge that nobody else on earth has ever possessed? Listen, if you're the first person to come up with this in 2,000 years, you're probably a heretic. Okay, Uh, that's the Bible, that's the the church theological term for it. If you're the only one who's ever had this idea, you're probably wrong, okay? Because God's revealed himself in his word. But what I am saying is the longer you walk with God, the longer you obey him, the more you see him working, the greater you get to know him, the more comfortable you become with who he is. Now, Now, again, this gets us started on one of the aspects of God that is difficult for us to understand. As we go throughout this chapter, you're going to see this over and over again. So it's worth us really digging in for just a minute and talking about this concept we call the Trinity, okay? Now, doctrine, by the way, is a set of teachings that we as a church hold to. One of the doctrines we hold is the doctrine of the Trinity. And that means that God has eternally existed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three members of the head are equally and fully God. Okay? Um, By the way, you'll see it come up St. Patrick's Day because I post it almost every year on Facebook on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, But if you want a funny picture of this, uh, look up Lutheran Satire's video on YouTube that is St. Patrick's Bad Analogies of the Trinity. What you find is any way that you and I try to describe the Trinity, we're always going to fall short. There is nothing else in all of creation that is a Trinity like God is. Okay? I was helped this week by a theologian by the name of Fred Sanders. He posted a children's lesson that he did at his church about the Trinity, and I want to use some of the things that he said here. So this is not going to be on the screen. This is just uh, for you to think about it. So the statement that God eternally exists as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit means that there is only one God but existing as three persons. Since there are three persons in God, we call God the Trinity. God is one being in three persons. Not three gods, just one. Not one person, three persons. What does that mean and what is it like? Well, I'm a being who's one person, okay? And this is, again, Fred Sanders' words. I'm just one person. I'm not a trinity. I'm just a unity. So God is more than I am because he is one being in three persons. But at the same time, 
Let's look at the Borkert family real quick. Sorry for calling you guys out, but you guys are the closest group of three, okay? So now you've got three persons, and you look at the Borkert family, but these three are not one. So God is more three than I am and more one than they are. That means that God is just more. God is more than we can understand or fathom or wrap our mind around, which shouldn't he be? I mean, if God made us, then it makes sense that there's things about God that are bigger than us. And this is one of those things. So the fact that God is three persons in one kind of makes our head hurt. But God is just more. Thinking about one person kind of helps us, and thinking about a group kind of helps us. But we always have to acknowledge that God is more. He's more than just that. So Jesus has been highlighting this throughout. We've seen it throughout the Gospel of John. We see it clearly. In fact, as we go through the rest of the chapter, look for all these times where he talks about the Father and the Spirit of truth and all of these things. But we see that God is three in one. Um, If you want some good resources on that, by the way, my favorite little book on it is called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. And then there's a longer work um, that's a little bit different, and I would love to converse with you about it if you ever want to read it. It's called Life in the Trinity by Donald Fairburn. And I'll, uh, I'll be quoting from Fairburn a little bit later. So look for this three-in-one language as we go through it. Now, am I saying that if I walk with Jesus, then one day, all of a sudden, I'm going to wake up and fully understand all of the intricacies of the Trinity? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that, you know, when, when I got married to my wife almost 16 years ago, we had only known each other for about eight months before we got engaged. We dated for five months. So we knew each other for about three months, dated for five months, got engaged for a year, and got married. Okay, so we were engaged for a full year. We didn't really know each other all that well. I know her a lot better 16 years later than I did when we first got married. I hope the same is true of you and your spouse, by the way. If not, uh, I would encourage you to look up the dates for a weekend to remember. It's a great time to get to know each other better, okay? But as you look at this, it just makes sense. The longer I walk with somebody, the better I know them. You're not going to have some kind of secret hidden knowledge that God hasn't revealed throughout history. God's revealed everything that we need to know about him in his word. But as you walk with him, you start to see how he lit, how he acts, how he works, what God's doing. So we get to a greater knowledge of God. As I learn what Jesus says I should do and I obey him, I come to know him in greater ways than I would have otherwise. I'll never fully understand all the nuances of the Trinity, but I will get to know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in greater and greater ways. Not only that, see, that leads to the second thing that we'll see, and that is, as we're walking in obedience, doing what God tells us to do out of a love relationship with him, we not only get greater knowledge of him, second of all, we see God answer prayers. We see God answer prayers. Go to verse 12. Truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he'll do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do that so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Now, there's a couple things to talk about here. First off, in verse 12, when he's talking about that idea of doing greater works, what is he meaning? Is he meaning that, like, we'll do something more miraculous? Well, it's hard to believe that there's much more miraculous than raising the dead, casting out demons, calming storms. Those are, you're not going to do something that's much bigger than that as far as the, the, the size of the miracle, if that makes sense. It's more likely that what Jesus is referring to is the scope of the ministry that he has given to his followers ever since then. You'll remember that shortly after this, Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people decide to follow Jesus that day. 
Although Jesus had had followers off and on, most of the people that were following him in the big crowds were coming because they were attracted to what he was doing and they didn't genuinely want to follow him. However, the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches, 3,000 people actually get saved that day. They get right with God. That's a greater work than what Jesus was doing because people didn't really follow Jesus that well, okay? So when he's talking about greater works here, he's not necessarily talking about more flashy, I guess, as much as the breadth and the scope of the works that God would allow us to do as we sit here and work with other people throughout the rest of the the life that we live, okay? Remember, Jesus was only publicly ministering for about three years. Uh, I've been pastor here for almost 11. So I've had more of an opportunity to be able to preach than Jesus did, which is kind of crazy to think about. So as we go through, there's that first issue that we're going to do the works that he does. He'll, in fact, we'll do even greater works in the scope that, because he's going to the Father. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. If you ask me anything in my name. Now, some people get real excited with this passage because they say, great. That's why we finish off all of our prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever wondered why we say that? Because if you grew up in church, you may not have ever thought about the fact that that's not something that, like, every religion says. Like, you don't say, in Buddha's name, amen, right? Why do we finish that way? Well, Jesus does teach us to pray in his name. But that doesn't mean just to tack it on the end of a a prayer, and then that means it's going to retroactively bless everything that you said up to that point. Um, It's kind of like if... I'm just going to go there. If you guys ever have been around folks who, when they pray for their meal, one of the statements that was real common for people to say for a long time is, and bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies, okay? It's a Big Mac. It's not going to, like, magically, to to borrow Calvin and Hobbes' term, it's not going to transmogrify itself into kale, okay? It's just not. That's not, not how that works, Now, you should pray before you meet your meal, even if it's a Big Mac. You should say, God, thank you for providing me with the resources to be able to buy this. Thank you for providing me with food. Especially if you're eating out, that means that you have more than you need, right? God, thank you that I'm not having to raid my pantry for that last can of beans and rice, but you've given me more than my daily bread today. So thank you for these things. That's great. But just because you said in Jesus' name, amen, doesn't mean that that Big Mac's suddenly going to become healthy. In the same kind of way, in an even greater way, We often think, well, if I just pray, you know, I prayed real fervently about this, but God didn't seem to answer it. What he's talking about when he says praying in my name is praying in such a way that lines up with the fact that we are ambassadors for Christ. The prayers that he says he promises he will answer are the ones that are in line with his character, with his nature, with his plan and his purpose in the world. I don't know about you, but as I've grown, I notice my prayers have started to pray, or my prayers have started to change, excuse me. I don't always pray for the stuff as much as I used to. A lot of times I'd pray that, you know, this person would would get better, and it's not wrong to pray for God to heal somebody. That's not wrong at all. But now I'm finding myself praying more often, God, would you give them the strength to honor you as they walk through this? God, would you allow them to minister to the doctors and the nurses and and the folks that are taking care of them as they go through this? Because, see, those are the kinds of things that I'm starting to learn are more in line with the way God usually works. Now, God can heal miraculously. I have no doubt or hesitation about that. But most often, he chooses to either use medicine or not to heal in a miraculous way. So, as you're praying for folks, are, are you praying in accordance with God's name, God's law, Warren Wearsby says it this way, this is not a magic formula that we automatically attach to our prayer requests, guaranteeing that God will answer. 
To ask anything of the Father in the name of Jesus means that we ask what Jesus would ask, what would please him and what would bring him glory by furthering his work. By the way, how do we get to know what fits in those categories? By getting to know God better. The better we know God, the more we start to learn how to pray because we start praying in ways that are more in line with who he is and what he's done. So here's what's incredible, though. As you and I obey him and get to know him, you start praying prayers that are more in line with his character and his nature. When you do, God actually answers the prayers that you're praying. If you've been a Christian for a while, I hope that you can look back over your life and see times when God has answered prayer. In fact, I would encourage you, it's a great exercise to sit down and write out some of the big moments especially, or even some of the little things that you've seen God do, where it's been very clear that he has answered a prayer that you've had in a specific way for his name and his glory. Now, if you can't, or if it's been a while, there might be several reasons, and I'd encourage you to ask God which of these might be true of you. There could be a lot of different things, but but let me ask, is there a sin you are committing that you haven't repented of? You see, the Bible says that God doesn't always respond to our prayers the way we would want him to, especially if we're walking in sin. What, what, what right do I have to ask God to do something on my behalf or on the behalf of someone else if I'm not doing what he says, right? Now, God's gracious, and sometimes he still works even though we're continuing in sin. But, but the, if you're not seeing prayers answered, the first thing I would ask is, would you allow the Holy Spirit to examine your life and see if there's a sin that you're committing that you're not repenting of, you're not turning from, and, and you're, not, you're just continuing to do it, okay? By the way, we all sin. None of us are perfect. But if you're continuing without trying to turn from it, without trying to grow through it, without trying to use the Holy Spirit's help uh, in putting that sin to death, then that can block your prayer life, okay? Also, are you praying with wrong motives for things that don't honor God? You know, James talks about you have not because you ask not, and you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss, is the way the King James said it. You got the wrong motives when you pray. You're, you're praying for what you want, what you think is best, what you think you need. See, praying in Jesus' name means, God, I'm praying on your behalf the things that you have said you, you would do. Not, God, I, I want that new phone. God, I want that new house. God, I want this to work out for me but rather prayers that say, God, I want to honor you in the middle of this. God, I want you to work in such a way that you would receive the the glory. God, I want this for the good of someone else. There's another uh, problem. Are you praying and not watching for an answer? How many of you have ever done that? Man, I'm bad about this. I will pray about something and then forget about it. I just don't think about it again. Maybe God answered it and I didn't see it because I wasn't watching for him to answer. Now, with that as well, are you praying but unwilling to sacrifice to see God answer it? See, sometimes when we pray, we're the, actually the answer to the prayer. God, I pray that you would help so-and-so come to know Jesus. Okay, well, you get to be the one to tell them the gospel. <laughs> God, I know that this person has this financial need, and would you meet that financial need in a miraculous way? All right, get your wallet out right? Maybe the reason God's not answering the prayer the way you want him to is because he's trying to involve you in being a part of the answer and you're resisting. So maybe you need to do something different there. Are you praying but not watching for an answer? Are you praying but unwilling to sacrifice? And then maybe the last one is God answering in a different way, but you're not willing to acknowledge it. 
Because in your head, there's one way that this is supposed to plan out, and you figured out exactly what God would, how he'd be most glorified in this, and so this is exactly how this should happen. But God's answering it in a different way. See, as we get to obey Jesus, we walk with him, we get to love him better, we live more like him, our prayers are going to start shifting. So we're going to start asking God for things in ways that are more in line with his character and his nature. Jesus says when we do that, he promises that he will answer them. Isn't that awesome? Like, you twist God's arm, he's God. I actually had a friend that traveled with a ministry one time on a mission trip, and they told him that if you pray for somebody to be healed, they'll be healed whether God wants them to be or not. Can I condemn that in the strongest possible terms? That would make you stronger than God, and that is not how this works. God is God. However, God gives you the privilege of knowing and coming alongside and praying for him to work praying for him to move, and then seeing him answer in response. So, answered prayer. Greater knowledge of God, answered prayer. Now, uh, we got to (coughs) move. Excuse me. All right, so we've got two down, three to go. You ready? All right, as we're walking with God, as he's giving us these benefits, as we're getting to know him, greater knowledge of him, second of all, answered prayer, then Jesus goes on to say that God also gives us help and direction. Look in verse 5, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The word is, uh, world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. This is where in this chapter we're introduced to the third member of the Godhead. He's referred to here as the spirit of truth, but this is the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is saying is that he's going to be sending the Holy Spirit in a different way than the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. Before this point, the Holy Spirit was present and active and working, but he came on a person for a particular period of time. You want to see a good example of this? Look at the life of Samson. If you remember, Samson was a guy that God gave supernatural strength. He gave him this incredible ability. In fact, I have this theory. Everybody always draws him like the Hulk, like he's just this big, massive guy. I have this feeling he was kind of scrawny. I just kind of think because everybody wondered where the source of his power was. If the guy looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, then probably everybody would be like, well, of course he can lift a house. See, look at him, you know? So I think he was probably fairly scrawny, but then all of a sudden God would come on him to give him the strength to defeat an entire army with the jawbone. Just incredible feats of strength. But then, when he violated the terms of his covenant with God, it says that the Spirit of the Lord went out from him because when he jumped up, he tried to fight off the Philistines like he had every single time, but didn't know that the Spirit of the Lord, or the the Spirit, or excuse me, the Lord had left him. See, that's how it worked in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit would come on a person for a particular time, for a particular task. That's why, by the way, David prays in the Psalms, take not your spirit from me. Because God could take his spirit away from you. But what Jesus said is, the spirit of truth, as I'm sending you, he's going to be with you forever. Forever. We find this happen just a few months after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Then we find that on the day of Pentecost, disciples are together, and it says the Holy Spirit comes on them with tongues of fire, right? It's this incredible moment where they start speaking in tongues, and people get saved, and they do all these incredible things. And that was the indication that the Holy Spirit had been sent on believers forever. So now, here's the thing. 
when you and I place our trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, from the very moment we are saved, hear that clearly, from the moment you are saved, you receive all of the Spirit of God you're ever going to get. He comes and takes up residence in your life from the very moment you're saved. Isn't that incredible? God lives inside you. Now, here he uses a couple of terms. He said, I'll I'll give you another counselor to be with you forever. He's the spirit of truth. As we look at that, that gives us a couple of ideas. And we'll look more at the spirit in chapter 16, by the way. But he gives us a couple of ideas here about what the spirit's role is. That word counselor is translated in other verses as advocate or as comforter. It has the idea of one who's called alongside to assist. It's more than an attorney, but it's kind of that idea of somebody who represents you in a legal situation. It's more than somebody who just encourages you. It's somebody who challenges you and strengthens you. It's somebody who really comes alongside you to help. Do you catch what God's saying here? Jesus is saying that for every believer, you have God with you to help you. Now, some of us have been in church so long that that's like, yeah. But, but think about that. The God of the universe takes up residence inside you to help you from the very moment you're saved, to give you the strength to overcome temptation to know what's right, what's wrong, to do the good things. That's what the spirit of truth comes in. He's teaching you what's right and what's wrong. We'll see it towards the end of the chapter that he's gonna remind you of everything that Jesus had taught. So the Holy Spirit comes into our life to show us and to teach us what's right and to teach us what's wrong, to guide us, to help us, to direct us as we obey God out of a love relationship with him. Doesn't this sound like a good deal, by the way? Get to know God better, get to see God answer prayer and get to have his help and his direction. By the way, just in case that was it, we could stop there and it'd be great, but Jesus keeps going. To me, this is one of my favorite parts where he gives us, number four, an assurance of his presence. An assurance of his presence. He's already said that the Holy Spirit is gonna be with us forever, but then pick up in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. Think about that moment. In just a matter of hours, Jesus is going to be dead. About 16 or 18 hours from this moment, Jesus is going to physically die. The guy that these disciples had staked their entire lives on, they had left everything to follow him, and in 18 hours, he's dead. And Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I will come back. I'm going to get you. Isn't there such a encouragement there? Verse 19, in a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you'll see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you'll know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now, pause right there. Read that verse again. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. This is where the Trinity stuff gets real crazy in an incredible way, all right? Track with me. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God, right? We've already established that. Three gods, one person. 
there's this incredible connection between the three members of the Godhead that we can barely scratch the surface of understanding. So when Jesus says, you'll know that I am in the Father, that makes sense, right? Because there's this connection with the members of the Godhead. But Jesus turns around and says, and you are in me, and I am in you. In some sense, now God is not making us another member of the Godhead, okay? You are not getting exalted to deity. That's not how this works. But when you come into a relationship with Christ, he is drawing you into a connection with God that is similar to the connection that exists within the Godhead. Like, do you see that? What what he's saying is, if, if I'm in the Father, you're in me, and I'm in you. We enjoy the same kind of connection that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit from eternity past. That's a mystery that should blow our minds. By the way, we'll see this more clearly when we get to John chapter 17 when he says eternal life is that they may know you. There's this intimacy where we are called and allowed somehow to be connected to God in a way that we can barely even begin to imagine. Now again, You're not God. You're never going to be. But that makes it even more incredible that God would draw us so intimately that we would be connected to him in a way that he describes similar to the way that he's connected within himself. Mind-boggling. We have this assurance of this connection with him. Verse 21, again, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. So you show your love by keeping his commands. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father. I will love him and then reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot. By the way, how bad do you feel for that guy? (laughs) Right? Judas, there's two Judases in the group of disciples. The one Judas is the guy that betrays Jesus. So this guy forever has to be the I'm not that guy guy. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it? You're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world. Verse 23, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Okay, so we've clearly established that. Listen, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's a different picture. Sometimes when we talk about the Holy Spirit indwelling us, let's be honest, we're bad at describing it and it comes off sounding like invasion of the body snatchers. Like, that there's some kind of like, like zombie thing, the Holy Spirit's... I mean, have you ever had that feel about this? I, maybe I'm the only one. Maybe. <laughs> you got a weird pastor, I'm telling you. But what Jesus says is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is God coming to make his home with us. Have you ever lived at a house that wasn't your own? Ever lived with somebody for a few months? When we first got to the the area, we lived with my mom and dad for like nine months. Now, it was my house from when I was a kid, so it was kind of different. We had somebody that lived with us for a few months while they were between places. You know, that's different. That they hear the the heated arguments. (laughs) You know, for the first couple weeks, you try real hard not to, right? Eventually, they overhear what comes out of that kitchen. But they also get to be there for the laughs on the movie night, you know? They get to be around as you do life together. Listen, God 
comes to do life with you. Let's go back to that cultural Christianity of, yeah, I'm a Christian. Grandma prayed for me and used to take me to Bible school. Praise the Lord that you had a good godly grandmother. But following Jesus means coming into a relationship with God where he makes his home with you. That's got to change everything. By the way, that means no matter how lonely you feel today, you are never alone, ever. Because God is right there with you. The Holy Spirit is living inside you. Jesus said, we'll come to him and we'll make our home with him. Don't you want to grow to understand that more? Don't don't you want to grow to, to let this be an awareness in everything you do? You see, as we grow to obey him, we start becoming aware of his presence. Guys, God's omnipresent. We know that means he's present in all of creation and all of time all at once. But there's a unique way in which he's present with his people. There's a unique experience of that that we have because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. God makes his home with us. This is how it was supposed to be, right? Remember, go back to the Garden of Eden. When you go back to the Garden of Eden, you find Jesus walking with, with Adam and Eve in the garden. By the way, that, that's most likely Jesus who takes it on a physical form. And we ever find God showing up in a physical form in the Old Testament, that's probably God the Son, just before he took on a physical body for good in the incarnation. But it said that they would hear God walking in the cool of the day. They got to walk with God and talk with God. We get a taste of that now. That's what following Jesus is about, not just about those do's and don'ts and try to check all these boxes and make everybody think how spiritual you are, but instead, a greater knowledge of him that results in answered prayer, in guidance, in help, in direction, in an assurance of his presence, and then finally, a peace that is unlike anything the world can give. It's a Latin peace. Go down with me to verse 27. We're just going to read verse 27 and talk about it quickly because the 28 through following kind of covers... And explains a little bit more about it. But verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. Isn't that such a telling statement? I don't give you peace like the world does. I give you my peace. What a powerful reminder. Now, This is an especially poignant picture for us as we watch all that's taking place in Ukraine. The people of Ukraine would desperately love to have peace. But you know what peace would look like for them right now? A ceasefire, a truce of some kind. You know, when that happens and you get peace, you're always wondering, yeah, but for how long? How long till he does it again? How long till we're back in this place? That's the kind of peace the world gives. In fact, here's what Donald Fairburn says. When the world is able to serve up peace at all, which we have to admit is not very often, the peace it gives us is merely negative, the absence of open hostility and conflict. All the world can hope for is a truce. But Jesus is offering us something different here. Not the elimination of the storm, but the promise that one can find calmness in the midst of the storm. And this kind of peace is far more valuable than a mere ceasefire. Calmness in the midst of the storm can be deeper 
and more permanent since it doesn't depend on external factors. This is the peace that he gives us. Now, by the way, I would push back a little bit on that last sentence. He said this kind of peace doesn't depend on external factors. I think it does. And I, he would agree with this. I'm, I'm pretty confident. Because this peace is not in me. It's not that I've reached, like David Allen said, and getting things done, a place where my heart is like water, right? You know, mind like water, and everything's just peaceful, and I've reached some kind of Zen platform. No, rather, this peace is based solely off of who God is and what God's done. See, my peace as I go through anything, the, the calmness that I have in the middle of the storm is the calmness that there's a God who is right there with me. A God who's made his dwelling with me. A God who's got a plan and a purpose to rule and reign over all of creation. And a God who no one can stop or thwart. I know no matter what happens to me in this life, as soon as I die, I will open my eyes and see Jesus. What are you going to do to me then? What are you going to do? Now, I'm not saying that life isn't hard. You know, storms are still storms. But we have this peace and this calmness that says my God is the God who overcomes the grave. My God is the God who died in my place and rose from the grave and now gives me his life. See, that's why I want to love him. That's what I want to do what he says. Because as I get to know him and he answers prayer, and I get to have his help and his guidance and his direction in my life. And I live with that assurance of his presence. I can have a peace that keeps me calm in the middle of the storm. For me, guys, that's probably one of the biggest ones. I am not a stoic individual in any way, shape, or form. I am emotional. I cry at movies. I cry at movie scores. If I'm listening to a playlist for movies and I've seen the movie and I hear the music, I choke up, okay? People like me need something outside of us to give us peace. And I'm so grateful that the God who says this is the God who died to buy my peace. The guy who suffered to give me hope the God who gave himself for me. Bow your head and close your eyes. Again, we do this just to give you a, a chance to respond. It's not something that we're not doing anything weird. We just want you to bow your head and close your eyes to so take just a minute and respond to what God said. And I know we've gone a little long today, so if you need to duck out, I completely understand. But before we do, let me ask you a few things. Number one, have you ever surrendered to this God who has loved you in this way? Are you actually doing what he says? Are, are you showing that you love Jesus by following him and living the kind of life that he's called you to live? Then as we go through these five things, the question is, am I continuing to live that out in such a way that I'm growing in these five areas where I'm getting to know him better, I'm seeing him answer prayer, I'm getting help and direction, and I'm resting in the assurance of his presence and the peace that comes from knowing that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Am I resting in those things? Doing what he says? Then my question for you then today is, which of these do you really need to focus in on? 
Are you walking out your love for Christ in obedience? Are you growing? Maybe today you just need to stop and say, God, I thank you for all of this. Again, some of these things are so familiar to those of us who've been in church for a while that that they lose their impact. Would you ask God to again, let your brain turn to mush as you try to contemplate the intricacies of eternality and the Trinity? Would you help him to, would you ask him to give you a greater faith in prayer to really seek his face in a way that's honoring to him? To not just do what you want, but to seek his help and his direction? Would you ask him for a greater assurance and understanding of the fact that he is with you and give you peace in the midst of the storm? Take just a moment and do business with God. If you need to talk with me, I'll be down front. If not, you just pray where you are, respond as God leads. Father, we thank you that you're a God who's so big that you're so far beyond all that we could ask or think or imagine. You're a God who's so good that you even allow us into your presence to pray through what Jesus has done. You're a God who is near, a God who lives with us. As many problems and as many faults and as many failures as we have, You're a God who shares his own peace with us. So, Father, give us clarity. Give us a greater desire to honor you. Give us the strength to follow you, to do what you say. Because we confess together this morning as a group that we love you. So we ask these things because we believe they're in accordance with Jesus' name, his character and his nature. 